Well, welcome everyone. So what I want to do tonight is show the context for the jhanas. There's a teaching that occurs in sort of one form or another in about 30 different suttas that goes by the name of the gradual training or the graduated training. And it's the curriculum for the monks and nuns, apparently. <clears throat> when you became a monastic, then this was the practices that you followed all the way to full awakening. So what I want to do is share with you the sutta that is, well, probably the most complete in terms of it covers most of the, the items. No sutta covers all of the items. Some of the items show up in only one sutta or a couple of suttas, but some of them, like the jhanas, show up in most of the suttas. This particular sutta is the second discourse in the long discourses. It would be Diganikaya number two. It's the Samanyapala Sutta, the discourse on the fruits of the spiritual life. And this is the one that I was reading from about the hindrances and the jhanas on the previous two nights. This was my teacher Ayakema's favorite sutta. It was her teacher, the Venerable Nyanarama's favorite sutta. And it certainly would make my top three favorite suttas. I, I wouldn't be able to pick out exactly which one I thought was my favorite. So what I'm going to do is tell you the sutta. Now I'm going to give you my version of it. Uh, after the retreat, you should go look up the real version. There's a great uh, translation by Bhikkhu Bodhi on the uh, suttacentral.net website. Um, if you don't know suttacentral.net, you should, you should learn about it. It's, it's a great resource for finding the suttas online. Uh, and there are multiple translations of many of the suttas. And the Pali. And, you know, Vietnamese and Chinese and Thai and all sorts of languages. suttacentral.net. So, I'm going to give you what I got. <clears throat> Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was living in Jivaka's mango grove outside the city of Rajagaha with a company of 1,250 monks. Jivaka, who had given the mango grove to the Buddha, was the royal physician in the court of King Adityasattu, king of Magadha. And on the night that this sutta takes place, it was the full moon. And King Adityasattu was sitting on the upper terrace of his palace, surrounded by his ministers and other members of the court. When the full moon rose, King Ajitasattu uttered a joyful exclamation. Oh, what a beautiful night! Oh, what a wondrous night! Oh, what an auspicious night! Perhaps we could visit some recluse or Brahmin who could bring some peace to my mind. You see, King Ajitasattu had a very unpeaceful mind. 
This was because he had killed his father, good King Bimbisara. King Bimbisara actually met the Buddha before he became the Buddha. The story goes that King Bimbisara was looking out of one of the windows of the upper part of his palace, and he saw this monk, this monastic, this recluse, going on alms round from house to house. But he had a well, he had a more regal bearing than the average recluse. And so King Bimbisara called some of his ministers over and said, See that recluse? Follow him, see where he goes, and report back to me. And so three of his ministers followed the Buddha-to-be, Siddhartha Gautama, back to Vulture's Peak, which is a mountain outside the city of Rajagaha. And it's studded with caves, so it's a great place for recluses to hang out and meditate. So while two of the ministers kept watch on where Siddhartha Gautama had gone, one went back and informed the king. And the king rode out as far as he could go in his chariot and dismounted. And the two other recluses showed him where Siddhartha Gotama was staying. The king went up to Siddhartha Gotama, introduced himself, made all the usual inquiries about his family, etc. Was quite impressed. In fact, was impressed enough that he offered Siddhartha Gotama a ministerial position in the court there in Rajagaha. But Siddhartha Gautama had left home because he wanted to figure out what to do about Dukkha. Uh, he wasn't interested in doing politics. So he politely declined. But King Bimbasara got him to promise that if he figured it out, he'd come back and tell the king. And sure enough, three years after his awakening, the Buddha returned to Rajagaha and gave a discourse to King Bimbasara. And King Bimbasara was established in the fruit of stream entry. In other words, he attained to the first level of awakening. And he became a devoted follower and sponsor of the Buddha. But King Bimbasara had a son, Prince Aditisattu. And Prince Aditisattu was an ambitious man. He grew weary of waiting for his father to die and decided to take, well, matters into his own hands. He strapped a dagger to his thigh and went sneaking into his father's private quarters where he was immediately apprehended by the guards. They hauled him up before the king and they said, Great king, we found your son sneaking into your private quarters and he had this dagger strapped to his thigh. Son, why were you sneaking into my private quarters with the dagger strapped to your thigh? I was going to kill you, Dad. Why do you want to kill me? I want your kingdom. Why didn't you just say so? Here, you can be king. King Bambasara was quite happy to turn the kingdom over to his son because that meant the king could go off and meditate, practice the spiritual life full time. So, King Ajisasatu got to be king without having to kill his father. But he grew weary that his he grew worried that his father was going to become weary of this meditation stuff, which seemed kind of boring. And so he ordered his father clamped in the dungeon so he wouldn't take back his kingdom. He didn't have the heart to order his father killed. He just cut off all his food. 
He did allow one visitor, the queen. She was very shrewd. When she would go visit her husband, she would smear her body with honey and then could live by the king. The king could live by licking it off. When King Bimbasara wasn't dying, King Ajitasatu went to see him. Dad, how come you're not dead yet? Oh, when your mother comes to visit, she smears her body with honey and I live by licking it off in the visits from the queen. But still, King Bimbasara wasn't dying. So King Ajitasatu ordered him tortured. And during the torturing, he died. The commentary tell us that two messages arrived simultaneously at the palace. The first message was that a son had been born to his, King Ajitasatu's queen. And King Ajitasatu, for the first time, knew a father's love for his son. And he turned to his men and he said, release my father from prison. And then they gave him the second message, which was that his father had died. <clears throat> from that night onwards, King Ajitasatu had terrible nightmares. He would no sooner fall asleep than he would wake up screaming. And his servants would rush in, great king, great king, are you all right? I'm fine, I'm fine, go away, go away. And he'd send the servants away and he'd fall back to sleep and he'd have another nightmare. So on this full moon night, King Ajitasatu doesn't want to go to sleep because if he knows if he falls asleep, he's going to have nightmares. And if the king has insomnia, nobody gets to sleep. So all the ministers of the court and Jivaka and other hangers-on were all up there on the upper terrace of the palace when King Ajitasatu uttered his joyful exclamation about wanting to visit some recluse or Brahmin who could bring some peace to his mind. And immediately one of the ministers piped up and said, There's Peruna Kasapa. He's long gone forth. He's esteemed as holy. He has many followers. He's in the last stage of his life. You should visit him. Perhaps he can bring some peace to your mind. The king said nothing. Another minister pop, piped up. There's Makali Gosala. He's long gone forth. He has many followers. Uh, you get the picture, right? Each minister would champion his recluse or Brahmin, and the king would say nothing. <clears throat> When the hubbub finally calmed down, the king turned to Jivaga, who was nearby, and said, Jivaga, do you know any reclusive Brahmin that we could visit who might bring some peace to my mind? Great king, the Buddha, the perfectly awakened one, is staying in my mango grove with a company of 1,250 monks. He teaches a Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. You should visit the Buddha. Perhaps he can bring some peace to your mind. Prepare the elephant vehicles, Jivaka. So Jivaka goes running down from the upper terrace of the palace to the stables down below. And he has 500 female elephants saddled up, along with the king's royal bull elephant. And then he runs back up to the upper terrace of the palace and it says, Great king, the elephant vehicles are prepared. Do as you see fit. So King Ajitasatu had 500 women of his court seated on the 500 female elephants. And then he and Jivaka mounted up on the royal tusker 
and they went riding forth in full royal splendor, with torchbearers going before. Must have been quite a sight on that full moon night. They rode out of the palace through the new city of New Rajagaha, and then through the old city, and out the south gate, and hung a left and headed towards the mango grove. And when they got near the mango grove, it was quiet. It was a little too quiet. Jivaka, are you betraying me? Are you turning me over to my enemies? No, great king. Why would you think that? You said there's 1,250 people in that mango grove. I don't hear a sound. They're probably all meditating, great king. Look, you can see lights in the pavilion hall. Go forward, great king. Go forward. So they went as far as they could go on the elephants, and then they dismounted the king and Jivaka and all of the women of the court, and they went up to the pavilion hall. They go in. The king's checking it out. Which one's the Buddha? He's the one sitting at the far end facing everyone else. Yeah, King Ajitasatu likes what he sees. Everybody's sitting there very quiet. Nobody's playing with their foot or coughing. Pretty impressive. By this time, he's walked up near the Buddha and he says, If only my son, the prince, could enjoy peace such as this. The Buddha overhears him and says, Great king, do your thoughts follow your affection? Yes, indeed they do, venerable sir, indeed they do. I love my son the prince very much, and it would be wonderful if he could experience peace such as this. And then the king saluted the Buddha, saluted the monks, and sat down at one side. Sitting there, he said, Venerable sir, may I ask you a question? Certainly, great king, ask whatever you wish. Venerable sir, in my kingdom there are people who practice many different crafts. There are elephant trainers, there are horse trainers, there are archers, spearmen, camp marshals, chainmail warriors, there are uh, garland makers, potters, statisticians, accountants, bakers, street sweepers, barbers. Each practices their craft and it's possible to see some fruit of their labor here and now. Venerable Sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Great King, have you ever asked this question of any other reclusive Brahmin? Yes, actually I have. I've asked uh, half a dozen other recluses and Brahmins about this matter. But, well, they just preached their doctrine at me. They never really got around to answering the question. It It was like asking for a mango and being given a breadfruit. It was most unsatisfying. So I ask you again, Venerable Sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Great King, I will ask you a question. Answer as you see fit. Suppose in your palace is a workman, a slave, who arises before you each morning, sees that all of your needs are met, waits on you hand and foot, speaks politely to you, doesn't go to bed until after you've gone to bed. Suppose this slave were to think, it is wonderful, it is marvelous, the destiny of meritorious deeds, 
For this king, Ajitasattu, is a human, and I am a human. And yet he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god, while I wait on him hand and foot from morning to light. Perhaps I should do meritorious deeds. Great king, suppose at some later point this slave were to shave off his hair and beard, put on the ochre robes, and go forth from the home life to the homeless life. Upon hearing of this from your men, would you say to them, Go make that man come back and be my slave? Oh, no, venerable sir. We would rise up before him. We would prepare a seat. We would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great king, is this not a fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Yes, yes it is, venerable sir. Venerable sir, can you point out any other fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Great king, I will ask you a question. Answer as you see fit. Suppose in your kingdom there's a farmer who toils in his fields from morning to night. And then when it's harvest time, he winds up paying a large portion of his harvest as taxes to support the royal treasury. Suppose this farmer were to grow weary of paying taxes. Suppose he were to think, It is wonderful, it is marvelous, the destiny of meritorious deeds. For I am a human, and King Ajitazatu is a human. But he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god, while I toil in my fields from morning to night, and then wind up paying a large portion of my harvest as taxis to support the royal treasury. Perhaps I too should do meritorious deeds. Great king, suppose at some later point this farmer were to shave off hair and beard, put on the ochre robe, and go forth from the home life to the homeless life. Upon learning of this, would you send your men, saying, Make that man come back and be a farmer so he can support the royal treasury? Oh no, venerable sir. We would rise up before him. We would prepare a seat. We would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great King, is this not also a fruit of the spiritual life visible here now? Yes, yes it is, Venerable Sir. Venerable Sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now, but more wondrous and more sublime than these? Listen, great king, and pay attention. A Tathagata arises in this world, a fully awakened Buddha, who teaches the Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. A householder or a householder's child or some other person hears the Dhamma and gains faith, and at some point thinks, Household life is crowded and dusty. Going forth is free like the air. And then that householder or householder's child or other person shaves off hair and beard, puts on the ochre robe, and goes forth from the home life to the homeless life. Great King, when someone joins the Tathagata's order, they live restrained by the precepts, the rules of behavior. The first of these precepts, Great King, is I undertake the training to refrain from taking life. The second of these precepts is, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. 
We're also celibate. We tell the truth. We try to be peacemakers rather than cause division. We don't use harsh or abusive language. We don't engage in gossip or idle chatter. We don't take intoxicants. We eat in only one part of the day. We don't see singing, dancing shows. We don't adorn ourselves with garlands or perfumes or jewelry. We don't sleep in high and luxurious beds. We don't handle gold and silver. There, there are many rules, great king. By keeping all of these rules, it makes it possible to live a life with senses restrained. Upon seeing a sight with the eye, one does not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states such as covetousness or grief overcome one. Upon hearing a sound with the ear, smelling a smell with the nose, tasting a taste with the tongue, touching a texture with the body, thinking a thought with the mind, one does not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states such as covetousness or grief overcome one. By living with senses restrained, it's possible to be mindful of all that we do. Mindful when going forward, mindful when coming back, mindful when looking forward, mindful when looking back, mindful when putting on the robe and carrying the bowl and going on alms round, mindful when returning from alms round, mindful when eating, chewing, savoring, and swallowing, mindful when going to the toilet, mindful when walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. Mindful when speaking and keeping silent. Mindful when going to sleep and mindful when waking up. Also, great king, we're content with little. All we need is food, clothing, shelter, and medicine if we're ill. This leaves us free to go wherever we want, like a bird on the wing. Great king, with these noble precepts, this noble guarding of the senses, this noble mindfulness, this noble com contentment, it makes it possible to do the work of a recluse. Upon returning from the alms round, having eaten the midday meal, one resorts to a secluded dwelling, the forest, the root of a tree, a heap of straw, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, the open air. One sits down cross-legged, holds one's body erect, and sets up mindfulness before oneself. Great King, when practicing meditation, there are five states of mind that can arise that hinder progress on the spiritual path. The first of these is sensual desire. Sensual desire is like being in debt. If someone is in debt, they must continually work to pay back the debt. But if someone were to be able to pay back the debt and be free from debt, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome sensual desire, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The second of these hindrances, great king, is ill will and hatred. Ill will and hatred is like being physically ill. If you're physically ill, you don't feel well. You can't think straight. You're hot. You can't do what you want to do.
If you're overcome with ill will and hatred, you don't feel well. You can't think straight. You're hot. You can't do what you want to do. But if a person was ill and were to take medicine and overcome that illness, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome ill will and hatred, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The third of these hindrances, great king, is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is like being in prison. If someone is in prison, they just sit there, missing out on all the good things of life. If someone is overcome with sloth and torpor, they just sit there, missing out on all the good things of the spiritual life. But if someone were to be released from prison with no loss of possessions, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome sloth and torpor, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The fourth of these hindrances, great king, is restlessness and remorse. Restlessness and remorse is like being a slave. A slave is always go there, do that, come here, do this, always busy but never doing what the slave wants, only what the master commands. It's the same with restlessness and remorse. One attempts to meditate, but one's mind is all over the place, or one's body can't get settled. But if a slave were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad. If one can overcome restlessness and remorse, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The fifth of these hindrances, great king, is skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is like being on a perilous desert journey where bandits abound and provisions are scarce. First, one thinks to go this way, but no, there's sure to be bandits. Maybe we should go this way, but no, there won't be any water. One does more starting and stopping than actual progressing. It's the same with skeptical doubt. First, one thinks this is the practice, but no, too boring. No, this other's got to be the practice. No, too elaborate. One does more starting and stopping than actual progressing. But if someone on a perilous desert journey were to arrive at a place of safety, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome skeptical doubt, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. When one sees that these five hindrances are not abandoned, one regards that as being in debt, being physically ill, being in prison, being a slave as a desert road. But when one sees that these five hindrances are abandoned, one regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, release from prison, freedom from slavery, as a place of safety. Thus secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is with thinking and examining, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. One drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, think of a bath man or his apprentice, and the bath man taking a metal basin and soap flakes, pouring them into the metal basin and then pouring in just the right amount of water and mixing the soap flakes and the water until he has a homogeneous ball of soap. In the same way, 
one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with a rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so that there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, this is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, Great King, with the subsiding of thinking and examining, by gaining inner tranquility and unification of mind, one enters and dwells in the second jhana, which is without thinking and examining, and contains rapture and happiness born of concentration. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, such that there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, think of a lake far up in the mountains, no streams coming in from the east, the west, the north, or the south, not even any showers of rain from time to time, and yet at the bottom of the lake is a spring of cool, clear water. The cool, clear water would totally permeate the lake, totally fill the lake, so there was no part of that lake not filled with cool, clear water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, Great King, with the fading away of rapture, and by remaining imperturbable, mindful, and clearly aware, one enters and remains in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, Happy is one who is equanimous and mindful. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Great King, imagine a lotus pond where there are growing blue, white, or red lotuses. They grow up out of the mud, but do not come above the surface of the water. They would be filled with water from their tips to their roots. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, Great King, with the fading away of pleasure and pain and with the previous passing of joy and grief, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, a state beyond pleasure and pain that contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind so that there is no part of one's body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. Great King, imagine a man covered from the head down by a white sheet so that his body is totally suffused by the white sheet. In the same way, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, Great King, with a mind that's concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, 
and given to imperturbability, one can now direct and incline it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus, this is my body, made of material form, composed of the four elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, which is supported by it and bound up with it. Great King, insights into the nature such as these are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with the mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, one can direct it and incline it to the various psychic powers. One can create a mind-made body. One can wield the supernormal powers, such as being one, becoming many, being many, becoming one, appearing and disappearing at will walking on water as though it is earth, diving into the earth as though it is water, passing through walls and ramparts unimpeded, flying cross-legged through the sky like a bird, stroking the sun and the moon as mighty as they are, wielding mastery over the body as far as the Brahma realms. One can also hear sounds at a great distance. One can know the minds of others. One can remember past lives. One can see beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. Great King, psychic powers such as these are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wielding, and given to imperturbability, one can direct and incline it to the destruction of the asavas, the intoxicants. One can understand this is dukkha, this is the origin of dukkha, this is the cessation of dukkha, this is the path of practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha. One can understand, these are the intoxicants, the asavas. This is the origin of the asavas. This is the cessation of the asavas. This is the path of practice that leads to the cessation of the asavas. And one can make an end to all of the asavas, and in so doing, put an end to all dukkha. One can overcome the asava of sense-desire, the asava of becoming, the asava of ignorance. And when one does so, there is no more dukkha. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. And furthermore, Great King, there is no fruit of the spiritual life more wondrous and more sublime than this. The King was impressed. Wonderful, marvelous. It's, it's like setting up right something that's been knocked down. It's like pointing out the way to one who is lost. It's like bringing a light into a darkened room so that those who have eyes can see. I go for refuge to the Buddha and to the Dhamma 
and to the Bhikkhu Sangha. May the Buddha please consider me a lay follower from this day forth. And then King Ajitasattu got all shamefaced. And finally he blurted out, Venerable Sir, a transgression overcame me. For the sake of for the sake of rulership, I killed my father, a, a righteous man and a righteous king. Indeed, a transgression did overcome you, great king, in that you killed your father, a righteous man and a righteous king. But it is good that you acknowledge that transgression for the sake of your restraint in the future. Then King Ajitasattu said, We must be going. We have many things to do. Do as you see fit, great king. So the king saluted the Buddha, saluted the monks, circumambulated the Buddha, and then keeping the Buddha on his right side, he and Jivaka and all the women of the court went back to where the elephants were parked, mounted up, and rode back to the palace. Not long after the king was gone, the Buddha said to the monks, This king has ruined himself. This king has destroyed himself. If he had not killed his father, a righteous man and a righteous king, the stainless eye of Dhamma would have opened in him tonight, and he would have attained the first level of awakening. But this king has ruined himself. He has destroyed himself. And the monks were very pleased with all that the Buddha taught. Now, the sutta ends here. The commentaries, however, go on to say that King Atatisattu went back to the palace and had his first good night's sleep since his father died. And he indeed did become a great protector of the Dhamma. Three months after the Buddha's death, there was a council of Arahants, the first council. And it was held in a cave just outside the walls of the city of Rajagaha. Obviously, these 500 fully enlightened disciples felt that they were safe there with the protection of King Ajatasattu. But King Ajatasattu was an ambitious man. After the Buddha's death, he set out on wars of conquest and he conquered all the neighboring kingdoms and republics and built the nucleus of the first great Indian empire. But not all went well for King Ajitasattu. You see, his son killed him. And his grandson killed his son. And his great-grandson killed his grandson. And his great-great-grandson killed his great-grandson. And at that point, the people of the kingdom of Magadha said, Enough of these father killers. They killed the last of the line and installed a new dynasty. Now, the reason I like this is because it really points out what we're up to here. We've mentioned before sila, samadhi, panya, morality, concentration, wisdom. Did you catch the bits in the sutta about sila? The keeping the precepts, guarding the senses, being mindful of all that you do, being content with little. These pertain to your behavior, your ethical behavior, your behavior that's harmless. And then samadhi, overcome the hindrances and concentrate your mind with the jhanas. And then panya, wisdom. With a mind concentrated by the jhanas, examine 
body and mind, right? Investigate the four establishments of mindfulness, body, vedna, mind states, phenomena, the last three being primarily mind. Understand what's going on. See things as they are. If you see things clearly enough, then you can let go. And letting go, as I said early on, is the whole essence of the spiritual path. If you let go deeply enough, you can overcome the asifas, the intoxicants. I heard a talk by Eric Kolvig one time, and he said, Samsara is not a wheel. It's a drunken party in a casino. Our job is to sober up, find the exit, and get out. And according to the Buddha, what they're serving at this drunken party in a casino is sense desires, becoming, and ignorance. That's our three intoxicants. But telling you, eh, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, you need to actually see the drawbacks of all that. And that's what the insight practices are about, to really get a good look at the world and your relationship to it and understand what's going on. And then you're hopefully able to release the things you're clinging to and find freedom.